welcome to MonarchCast. We are talking all things royalty today. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And we're talking a queen consort today. Not a queen, but she was pretty powerful in her own right. Pretty so gonna, famous. Yep. We're going to talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yes. I'm excited about this one. I know. She's one of your favorites, isn't she? She is. She's she's what we'd call a boss bitch today, I think. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for swearing. I don't know. Nah. Maybe I'm not. I'm not sorry. <laughs> yeah, this one's going to be interesting. Before we get into that, do you have any royal oops from last time? No. See, I feel like we haven't had them in a while, and I feel like that can't possibly be true. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's possible there's one, and I just didn't notice. So if, we're if not anyone, saying we're perfect. I'm just saying I didn't notice anything. Yes. If anyone is listening and and something sticks out at you, let us know because we do like to correct ourselves when we're glaringly incorrect as opposed to just kind of incorrect. Yeah. I just I don't want to be out there saying something happened in one year when it was like 10 years later. That's my only fear. Well, I think the helpfulness of especially Victoria is everything is much better documented and also at that time at least the names when we're talking about Victoria, it's not like a series of Henrys or Williams, you know, so it's a little bit easier not to mix everybody up. And all of her assailants had different names, thankfully. So, well, unfortunately, today, everybody's got the same name. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's we're... a it's a trend of the medieval post Norman era. Everybody like to honor each other. <laughs> I think also it's just Life expectancy wasn't that long, so there wasn't a lot of overlap. But I mean, like, I'm reading a book um, going back to the era of uh, Henry and Matilda, and literally there's five Matildas, so. It was like the, uh, what's the most popular name today? Well, it's like how everybody's like a Jennifer or a Katie or, you know, yeah, it's the same thing. It's just they're also all in the same family, so that had to have been crazy confusing unless they weren't calling each other by their given names you know nicknames come into play but anyway I was just like wow these people had a very serious lack of imagination when it came to baby names <laughs> well they're all biblical anyway so well some of them anyway let's move on we already did an episode on names if you want to yeah. listen to that take a gander <laughs> I feel like I want to do another one though like <laughs> uh well I mean we do have an opportunity when yeah uh, in the in the spring, I'm yeah, are Harry and Meghan gonna go all the way back to the early early English names, you know, Saxon names. <laughs> well, William, you know, you never know. Yeah, I do have a little bit of gossip. If you want to talk about that, um, I saw a really interesting article that Meghan Markle, the uh, producers of Suits, want her to come back for the finale. Yeah, they they said that basically they're willing to make a multi-million dollar donation to the charity of her choice should she do this. I think the chances of this happening are slim to none. I don't think it's an issue of money or charity donations. I think it's a problem of having a member of the royal family acting in that capacity. And by that, I mean acting and also in that I mean you know it's just like not done right well I was thinking about this because I remember when we were talking about Queen Elizabeth and we were talking about Edward and Edward really wanted to get into acting and the movie industry and all of that and he was strongly discouraged from it I think there's definitely an element of class going on there I mean because you have to remember you mean class snobbery yes so the thing about 
acting that's kind of interesting is I think the English certainly have this storied history of the theater, right? You know, the Royal School of Drama and all of that, or or the London School of Drama. You know, they they do hold it up to to a certain standard, but I think not for the upper echelons of society because there's in the flip side too where there was a time when being involved with an actress was enough to get you removed from the succession and also there was a time when the term actress was synonymous with prostitute so I think I don't see them encouraging a return to something like this especially when it's not necessary it's not like it's some kind of prestige project I don't see it happening and also Megan herself has kind of made it seem as though she wasn't exactly sorry to see her acting career go by the wayside you know like it wasn't really her passion um if it was if if she was Meryl Streep yeah that would have worked out a little differently but this this was not she was not she was okay. She wasn't like a phenomenal actress. Let's not, and I'm not dissing her. Let's just not pretend like she had any kind of career that anybody was going to no, talk but I mean, about. Aside from that, like personally, she didn't really seem like, I don't know, like her goal of being an actress didn't really seem the, to be the acting part of it. So I just don't really see her making that bargain on the grounds that she's doing this thing that she loves one more time. And, you know, an interesting case to look at would be Grace Kelly, um, right. famously an actress who became Princess of Monaco. And she did want to return to acting after she married into the royalty. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think she was ever really allowed to do it. Well, I think from what I've read, and maybe we should cover this at some point, she wanted to return to acting because she was really bored being Mm -hmm. a princess and she I guess they had never really talked about it and then when she did try to return her husband was like no you can't do that you that's that's not a befitting profession for the princess of Monaco right and so I that's where I also think you can make the argument like is Megan bored enough to go back to acting because If we believe some of the gossip, it stems from, you know, the palace not understanding. And by the palace, I mean the people who run the palace and their stuffy British ways not understanding what to do with her, but also her chafing at the discipline and stuffiness of living in the royal family. Keep an eye on that one. I I would if I were to bet, I would say no, that won't happen. Yeah, I mean, anything's possible, certainly. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't see that happening. They'll just make a comment, oh, she's living in London and about to have a baby. And Yeah, I mean, story. unless the people in the gossip machine manage to piss her off enough to make her decide, you know what, yeah, I'm going to do this because you can't tell me not to. So who um, knows? Yeah, and so it's kind of interesting. The other thing I wanted to talk about is I had read this article and I wanted to talk about it last time and it completely slipped my mind. But I read this really interesting story on The Cut. Um, and that's like an online magazine. It's from New and York Magazine. Is that what it is? Okay, yeah. I wasn't exactly sure what, what who published it. But sometimes I read interesting stories. And they had a story from December of 2018. And it's called Inside the Royal Gossip Machine. 
and it kind of gives some backstory on how royal gossip works. So I thought this would be kind of interesting to talk about because we've been talking a lot about the British press and where are the stories come coming from, what's made up, um, what's true, why are some of this coming out now? And this article is basically all about that. So if you have an interest in this, I'd recommend giving this a read. Um, some of the highlights were interesting and I just kind of wanted to point them out. This was originally written after that Palace actually commented on the rumors that Megan had made Kate cry and they said this never happened. And No, that was not the one they commented on. They commented on the one where Megan, I mean, Kate told Megan not to yell at Palace staff. Oh, okay. Well, one of the stories about Megan and Kate prompted comment, and this is incredibly rare. And so um, the article just basically says, you know, this this never happens. Why would they feel the need to comment? And oh, by the way, here's how the royal gossip works. So the royal gossip really is generated in part by the press coverage. And the best analogy for this would be um, the royal correspondence function somewhat like the White House press corps. So for those of you that maybe aren't listening in the U.S., um, the president has a press corps that follows him around. Their assignment is to follow the president. They don't just happen to write stories about what's happening in the White House. That is their entire beat. And so when he travels on Air Force One, there's press with him. When he goes to other countries, the press follows. They basically are there to report on what the president is doing. And the royals function very similarly. Um, There's an entire contingent of reporters whose beat is the royals. So much of the gossip that gets reported comes from these interactions. The reporters get familiar with the aides and courtiers and a lot of what you see being reported even some of the negative coverage comes from inside the palaces so I saw I thought that was kind of interesting because we had talked about some of this stuff with Meghan maybe you know coming from um, Prince Charles's court or even Buckingham Palace or maybe even Kensington Palace where maybe it's disgruntled staffers going to the press and airing their grievances that way Um, And what's interesting about it is a lot of these stories can take a kind of meandering path to the tabloids. So, for example, now we have this story about how William and Harry aren't getting along. But one of the reporters quoted in this article said they had first heard mention of this a year ago and it's only now being reported. So sometimes they get information and they sit on it and then that's where you have your press spin, right? So it's a year ago that wasn't really an interesting story but now that we have this tale of the feud in the press well certainly let's bring up that factoid we heard about William and Harry having tension you know even though that came up a year ago now it's being reported as present fact and and then you have the issue where some stories are of course pure fabrication and the other point that I thought was interesting was that the article made is that the royals also play this game so Um, They like to pretend that they're above it and not comment. But of course, it's a tricky balance between maintaining privacy and maintaining public interest and support, all while maintaining the mystique of royalty. I thought this was a good example. You know, we often think of the modern day royals doing this, but this goes all the way back to King George III. Um, His sons, we talked about them briefly with Victoria. They were all constantly embroiled in scandal. Um, So they started putting the public engagements on the court circular to show that the 
monarchy was actually doing work, that the king was going out and performing engagements and um, they weren't just there to spend money and generate negative stories in the press. Um, Victoria learned from this. She and Albert would use photographs, which at the time was a relatively new invention, um, and they would release photographs of their family to cultivate goodwill. Yeah, we talked about a little that a little bit last week. Right, right. Yeah, um, you know, Victoria certainly used the instances of people trying to kill her to her benefit and used No, the but also as well. that she was able to benefit from this new illustrated press of as a way to generate goodwill and didn't so much rely on her having to physically do the work of going out in her carriage. Right. It's just like a new method of PR. Yeah. And then one of the things that we talked about when we did our series on Queen Elizabeth um, at the very beginning is that, you know, she's had bigger press coverage than any monarch in history. And of course, we can't mention that without mentioning Princess Diana, who certainly learned how to manipulate the press. Um, And all of this is to say that the approach these days is much more judicious. Um, They give interviews very sparingly and they rarely, rarely comment. So when they had that comment about the story about Kate and Meghan, it really was it gave everybody pause because um it kind of showed you the fever pitch that the stories were reaching because the fact that the palace felt the need to comment in and of itself was a newsworthy item but there's also that idea that no one is outside of the palace is really sure what commenting means because they do it so rarely so i've seen i've seen stances where people say okay they commented on this and vehemently denied it, which means they they were really offended that this was said and so felt the need to protect Kate and Meghan by denying it. And then I've also seen stances where they say, actually, the fact that they denied it means it's probably true, because why else would they bother to spend that energy denying it? Right. And that's part of the mystique, right? The frustration is that because they do this so rarely, now the fact that they've done it People are trying to read meaning into that action and then then trying to relate back to the stories and say, well, what what was it that prompted them to do this? And it's kind of interesting for, um, and the article kind of summarizes it with this, you know, for Meghan Markle, this is going to be an interesting learning curve because she does come from Hollywood where somebody says something negative about you, you just release a statement. Um, that's just simply not, it's not how it's done. It's not her job. She can't stand up for herself. It's up to other people to decide whether or not anyone is going to stand up for her. And I would imagine that's that can be incredibly frustrating if you're going through it. And this is all, of course, assuming she's reading all of the coverage in the first place. Right. Um, and also the idea that she's supposed to, by nature of now being royal, be above it and not supposed to give it any thought, you know, so. Right. Which, of course, so is just, harder to say when everyone's calling you a druggie and, you know, breaking up the two royal brothers and your father's, you know, making himself available to the press at any opportunity. I could imagine that's frustrating, but I could also see the, the angle of it's actually your job now to ignore this. So, Right. So I just thought that was a really interesting article. I just kind of summarized it there, but there's a lot of really interesting quotes and things. So if you're interested in that, check that out. Um, You know, just given that we like to talk about royal gossip, I just thought it was a really interesting read and um, had some interesting points to make. But yeah, that's all I have for gossip. Um, It's kind of slow. I think, you know, right now everyone's just kind of waiting on this royal baby 
I even tried to do a search on the other royal houses to see if there was anything juicy going on, but I couldn't find anything, so. No, I think it's the post-holiday lull, you know, Happy New Year, everybody's calm. It definitely is. But, you know, this is a nice segue, speaking of rumors and speculation. Um, As we mentioned, we're going to be talking about Eleanor of Aquitaine today, and she herself was often subject to rumors and speculation, so... I think she'll be an interesting one to talk about, um, even though she lived about, you know, 700, 800 years ago. Well, actually, no. More like 900. More like 900, yeah. So um, quite some time ago. Um, The fact is, though, even though we're talking almost a century or, oh my gosh, I cannot speak, a A millennium millennium. (laughs) removed, um, Eleanor of Aquitaine is perhaps the most famous queen of the Middle Ages. She's... Famed as the queen of courtly love. She's written about in countless romance novels, which I actually read one thinking it was more of like a... I didn't know what it was when I got it. I thought it was more of a biography, and then I quickly realized it was historical fiction, and on top of that, it was a romance novel. So (laughs) you can imagine what that was like. And she's generally remembered as being as beautiful as she was powerful, but not much is actually known about her. She ruled in a time when women were merely accessories, and most accounts that mention her tend to be about something else entirely. So there's no written record of the life of Eleanor of Aquitaine. You know, she's mentioned in relation to her husbands. She's mentioned in relation to events in where she was pregnant. I mean, sorry, not pregnant, present, and um, may just, the Chronicle may just make mention of her presence there. And as I mentioned, she was also the subject of much rumor and speculation during her life. So many accounts that we do have have to be taken with a grain of salt. What is true is that she exercised enormous agency for a woman of her time. And we're going to see why and how she was able to do so. So we'll start at the beginning with some of the biographical stuff. Uh, Eleanor was born sometime between 1122 and 1124, and that's most likely in Poitiers, um, although her birth was not recorded because she was a girl. And her father was William X, the Duke of Aquitaine, and her mother was Enor of Châtellerault. My pronunciation is probably butchering that. But she was a high-ranking French noblewoman. Um, Eleanor, as a result, was well-educated for her time. She was well-versed in mathematics, Latin, history, as well as the typical female pursuits of the time, like dancing and music. Her education is lucky because she became William's heir presumptive when her brother William died in 1130. Um, So her father died in 1137 and left her everything. Um, This wasn't a problem in France at the duchy level as women could inherit. They just, as we've talked about previously, were prevented from inheriting the French crown. But inheriting a duchy, totally normal. Because you could inherit a duchy and marry a man, and then he could get your duchy, and so exactly no there. But yeah. it wasn't going to go to a younger brother of her father or anything like that. Um, yeah. There was no doubt that she was the heir to the Duchy of Aquitaine. And Aquitaine at the time was the largest and richest duchy in France. So this is kind of going into 
the feudal system in place at the time. You know, if you think of it as a pyramid with the king at the top and then his dukes on the next tier and then, you know, the lower ranking nobles and so on and so on down to the peasants and serfs, it wasn't one consolidated landmass that the king would rule over. So Eleanor's father was the Duke of Aquitaine and he was also the Count of Poitou. And Poitou and Aquitaine together made up the equivalent of what would today be one-third of the size of modern France for perspective. She's loaded. She's loaded. This is a vast, vast land holding. It's also land that the king of France himself does not control. So when she inherited the duchy, she became the most eligible bride in Europe but this was actually an incredibly dangerous position for her to be in. At the time, she's 13 to 15, depending on what birth date we're going with. So she is of marriageable age. And it's also a time where kidnapping an heiress in order to seize their throne was completely normal and Mm -hmm. an acceptable way of getting a bride. No one would have stopped her kidnapper if that happened so knowing the danger of this position her father left her in the care of king louis the sixth of france so he basically appointed the king as her guardian and he also went so far in one record i was reading um he basically made his you know companions that were with him at the time keep his death a secret until the king had been notified so nobody knew that he died until louis was made aware and this was all done to protect eleanor Um, and the other thing that this did was this gave king louis control of eleanor as his ward and by extension these lands so as we just mentioned this is a huge prize for louis Knowing that she's going to have to marry and not wanting to give up the holdings of Aquitaine, Louis quickly turns around and marries Eleanor to his own son, also named Louis. So do you think her father expected that that might happen? Like, why would he expect the king to protect her and not covet the lands for himself, right? And so the bargain of that is then... What is likely to happen anyway is that Eleanor is married to someone and gives up her lands, but best case scenario, it's the king of France or his son. He may have done that. I mean, think about the fact that she died. When when he died, she wasn't uh, betrothed to anyone. He hadn't made any marriage plans for her. So it very much could have been that he expected this outcome, and this was a very good match for Eleanor. Um, but he also put her in the hands of the most powerful man in the country as a form of protection. It's hard to say what his intentions were, but it just seems unlikely that he wouldn't have foreseen that outcome. Like that the king who doesn't control a third of the country that, well, France isn't really a country at that point, but doesn't control this massive land and as king of France would probably really want to, it seems unlikely that her father would assume out of the goodness of his heart, the king would just ignore this vast tract of land and do right by Eleanor, you know? It, that's not how well, women were treated at the time. <laughs> I don't so. think anybody would argue that he didn't do right by her. No, I'm saying that, but I, it just seems like it might have been cleaner to just send her to the king of France as a promise to marry his son or something. But Well, that may have, and who knows, but at the time when her father died, the king of France is also dying. He's... Um, dying of an unfortunate case of dysentery. Mm. But he's still able to 
finagle all of this while he's on his deathbed. But what ends up happening is he marries Eleanor to his son Louis and then very shortly thereafter um, the king dies, King Louis. And so Eleanor becomes Queen of France alongside her husband, King Louis VII of France. So this is actually a pretty good match for her. She went from being the Duchess of Aquitaine to now the Queen of France. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not bad. And as I mentioned, when she married Louis, she was roughly 13 years old. This all just, again, depends on which birth date we go with. But I'm just going to go, I'm just going to pick a set and go with that. But she's a young teenager at the time. and Louis- Which isn't unlikely. I mean, I think the church, we talked about this a little bit with Matilda, who got married at the age of 12. You know, the church at this time puts 12 as the minimum age to get married. So she's well within that range. Yeah, it's time. She certainly wasn't going to stay single very long especially not after the death of her father she can't as a woman afford to do that um it's just like unsafe. i mentioned she it's very unsafe and it worked out you know louis louis uh, around her age he was besotted with her um but eleanor by what little we actually know apparent appears to not really return these feelings um and this could be because louis was very pious he was the younger son of the king so he'd actually been trained for the monastic life he was destined to become a monk but when his older brother died he stepped up into the heir position and had to leave that life behind but um you know, much like we talked about this a little bit with Henry VIII, maintains this religious fervor that tends to be developed when you're thinking about a life in the church. And Eleanor grew up in the vibrant and culturally culturally rich court at Poitiers. So it's likely they were just very different. They, um, by all accounts, the court Eleanor grew up in was very flamboyant and, uh, everyone was very into music and dancing and and it was very far removed from this more theological focus regardless of their differences it's clear something was up because it took about eight years for their first child to be born and that was a daughter named marie so we're not off to a great start Uh, we talked about this over and over and over again but the number one thing that a king wants is a, is a prince a son yes because unlike in other countries where they might debate it as you've already mentioned in france marie has no chance of inheriting the crown exactly yep. it's it does it really does louis no good to have a girl and so in june of 1147 eleanor and louis decide they're going to go on crusade fun as one does now Just this like is astounding to me that people thought this was like a thing to do. <laughs> well, I mean, we're not that far removed from the events in the Bible. We're as about as far removed from the time of Eleanor as they were from yeah. the events of the Bible, right? But and we're I, not like let's go live like medieval kings and queens. <laughs> yeah, but I think also the world developed a little more slowly back then. Yeah. Life revolved around the church. The church, we've talked about this, the especially in these upper levels of the aristocracy and kings and queens, they were very in a very symbiotic relationship. So I think it's also this idea of glory and power and also, you know, you got to defend the land against the infidels. 
But they're not, like, they're the king and queen of France. There's no indication that the infidels are invading France, so this idea that they're going to leave their kingdom behind to go try to invade another one is insane. Well, it's I get that, that there's a that. religious angle and that I'm coming at it from an entirely different perspective, and obviously, you know, the Pope is on board, but it's just an idea that I have a lot of trouble wrapping my mind around. <laughs> I mean, they are clearly not the only people to ever do this. You know, this isn't even the first crusade, so. No, it's the second. And it's funny that you say that, though, because by all accounts, everyone thought this was a pretty terrible idea. Okay. <laughs> Except <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't a great idea. And, of course, later on when everything goes to hell, Eleanor gets blamed for it. But of course. nevertheless, they insisted on going. The Pope gives his blessing. And interesting about this is this was very much a joint venture Eleanor and Louis both quote took up the cross of the crusade so that's I'm not entirely sure what that entails but I think it's some kind of symbolic ceremony where the pope hands you a cross I'm not sure I just made that up well isn't the pope in Italy I mean where oh no no he they they had a ceremony where he gave their their blessing okay um they they may have went gone to Rome on their way to the Holy Land. I'm not really sure, but it, it's a whole thing. Going on crusade was very, very formal. You didn't just get on your horse and go. It was, right. you know, it was a very, very formal endeavor. Well, and you didn't do it without permission. Exactly. And normally it would just be a man leading his army. So it's highly unusual for a woman to go on crusade. Um, some people claim that this was because Louis could not bear to leave her behind. And so he dragged her with him that's probably not true from what we know um Eleanor was technically still the leader of the soldiers from Aquitaine Louis in charge of them by virtue of his marriage but Eleanor is the duchess so maybe she just wanted to lead her men on crusade um she also just reading between the lines of everything we know doesn't really seem like the type of woman who wants to be left behind and left out Again, a lot of this is just speculation because we just don't know. We only know that this happened because King Louis went on crusade. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. King Louis went on crusade and, oh, his wife came too. Um, you know, nobody's really writing about Eleanor And when it goes wrong, it's, of course, her fault. Exactly. And unfortunately, it went very wrong. So the crusade is a disaster from the start. The Byzantines um, get in the way. They went to Constantinople. I guess everybody got along while they were there, but the Byzantines weren't very helpful in the endeavor um, because they feared the French would cause more problems in their quest to conquer the Holy Land, you know, basically cause more harm than good. Louis was not a great military commander. He made really poor decisions, such as crossing through mountain ranges, trying to get to Antioch faster, um... And one of the reasons that they did this is they received information that the Germans had scored a victory over the Turks, but in fact it was the opposite, and the Germans had been absolutely slaughtered by the Turks. When they got to Turkey and they're crossing Mount Cadmus, the vanguard of their train becomes separated from the rear of the caravan, um, and that's mostly made up of mostly pilgrims. And they're ambushed and killed by Turks. So Eleanor and Louis barely escaped. In fact, I read one account that said that Louis was only 
uh, spared because he had dressed like a pilgrim. So nobody really gave him much notice, but all of his bodyguards were absolutely slaughtered because they were dressed in the ceremonial garb of the bodyguards of the king. And many people blamed Eleanor after this happened uh, because it was one of her vassals who made the decision to continue on instead of camping for the evening. This is a whole story. I'm trying to summarize it very quickly, but it's just one disaster after after another. A lot of people die. Eleanor gets blamed. By the time they actually reach Antioch, Louis and Eleanor are on very, very poor terms. So, And do you want to remind us where Antioch is? I think is it in Turkey. I think so, but um, I'm not actually sure. <laughs> it would make sense if this is all happening after they've left Constantinople on their way to it Jerusalem. It is. They, they're on their way. They never actually made it to Jerusalem. Um, the last Sounds like stop, Antioch might be as far. That's as they get. kind of the end of the road. So, one of the other reasons Eleanor is blamed for all of this is her uncle Raymond of Poitiers is ruling in Antioch. So after the fact, a lot of people thought she must have convinced Louis to go on crusade to help her uncle um, maintain his holdings. Um, of course, Louis, as we know, was very, very pious. So it's probably true that he just wanted to go on crusade. But Antioch is where everything kind of falls apart. Once they get there... Rumors start to swirl that Eleanor and her uncle Raymond are having an incestuous affair. Um, you know, again, you kind of have to wonder how likely is it that a queen would strike up an affair with her uncle, gross, um, you know, right under the nose of her husband, or how likely is it that her detractors are doing whatever they can to smear her name after this disastrous endeavor? Nobody really knows the answer, unfortunately, but it is true that these rumors started to swirl. And what's interesting about this is after all of this has happened, rather than play the good wife and try to put these rumors to rest, Eleanor decides she wants an annulment from Louis. Louis wants to leave Antioch and go home to Paris, and Eleanor refuses to go with him. Instead, she says, you know what, I I don't want to go with you, and actually, now that I'm here, and probably it's true she was under the protection of her uncle, this is as good of a place as any to do this, Um, but she says, I don't think we should be married anymore, and oh, by the way, I don't think we're even lawfully married, because we're too closely related in the eyes of the church to be lawfully wed where have we heard this before everywhere everywhere she's only using an already well-established rule book that kings would often use to get rid of unwanted wives because as we know even though the church has their own rules about how closely related you can be to get married the royals have been circumventing this rule as long as it's been around well and the the benefit to the royals is that the popes basically turn over every few years so one pope might give you a concession and you know you pay the pope a bit of money and he says oh it's fine and then the next pope is easily swayed to give him a little money and he says actually no it wasn't fine right well in this particular instance the pope is not on board with this and unfortunately because Eleanor's still a woman she doesn't really have the power to flex as we would say in this fashion so louis wins the day They stay married. He refuses to grant her the annulment. The Pope backs him up. They go home to Paris. 
and Eleanor is completely humiliated because she was trying to get rid of him and instead she's forced to return to Paris with her husband and then to follow that up she gives birth to a second daughter Alex in 1150 so she's kind of been put in her place uh, as 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 a woman, literally. It's no, your job is to stay at my side and have my babies. Maybe she doesn't want to go back with a man who drags her on crusade and then blames her when it all goes wrong and then also allows his people to insinuate that she's having an incestuous affair with her uncle. I mean, just spitballing here, that might not exactly make her want to stay with this man. Yeah, regardless of the reasons, their marriage is clearly in tatters at this point. You know, and it's likely it was never very strong to begin with. And they've yet to produce a son. And they've yet to produce a son. Exactly. So she has another baby, but it's another girl. So everyone's kind of giving Louis the side eye, like, this lady can't give you boys. Why are you clinging so tightly? So then in 1151... Henry II of England, and at the time he's not Henry II of England, he's Henry the heir to the throne of England, son of Matilda, who we talked about briefly. So Stephen is still king of England. Stephen is still the king of England, but um, as we talked about with Matilda, they made a deal where Henry would be Stephen's heir. Um, So he comes to visit Louis' court, And it's very likely that he and Eleanor met on this visit, although, of course, there's no record of this. No one mentions it. We just know that he visited. He is nine years Eleanor's junior. And the reason I'm mentioning this visit is because nine months after it occurred, Eleanor and Henry are married. What? So let's back up. So about seven months after Henry's visit, Eleanor and Louis are done. This time, it's Louis who requests the annulment. The marriage had never recovered from the crusade, and the last child had been a girl, so he has all the leverage he needs for the annulment, and Eleanor doesn't fight him. Once he convinces the church that this is the desirable outcome, it's a relatively easy matter to obtain this annulment. So Eleanor wants it, Louis wants it, everyone's on board, it's relatively amicable louis gets custody of her daughters she never sees them again that's pretty normal that's pretty that's how it goes you know that's par for the course as all this is going on however what louis doesn't foresee is that eight weeks after the annulment occurs eleanor marries henry sacre bleu (laughs) she's got a trick in her back pocket (laughs) that is like scandal 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 louis is pissed not only not only now is Aquitaine going to his rival, so he's losing this huge landholding, but Henry already has Normandy, not to mention England, so he comes to see this as a huge betrayal, and he came to believe that this was all planned. So this is interesting. Eleanor has to relinquish rights to her children, which came from her own body, mm-hmm. but she is legally entitled to keep the duchy that she inherited from her father. Yes, that follows her. That's very interesting. And her daughters, because this is very important, because she had daughters. So what do you think Louis' goal was then? Like he's going to divorce Eleanor and 
by doing so, he knows that he has to relinquish Aquitaine, right? Is his but plan he didn't, to... But he didn't until she remarried. Okay. So when they got the annulment, he still had control over these holdings because they shared children. Mm. But once Eleanor marries Henry, and it's highly likely they're going to have a male heir. Right. Aquitaine goes... To that, that male heir. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So got it. it doesn't all happen all at once, but... Louis can see the path that this is taking. And Louis gambled and lost. <laughs> but he also didn't know this was coming. It came out of left field. Yeah. So this is a he sees this as a huge betrayal. And given given how quickly the marriage occurred after the it annulment, yeah. it's likely that this was planned. Of course, we don't know to what extent. We don't know if Henry and Eleanor felt madly, passionately in love and couldn't live without each other, which was the premise of that romance novel that I read. Or (laughs) is it simply that Eleanor saw another option? You know, okay, I don't want to be Queen of France anymore, but I like being queen. How I mean, it's really unlikely that Eleanor and Henry would have known that Louis was going to annul their marriage. I mean, that's not a given. So it's likely that they make some kind of connection when he visits France and then when he hears of the annulment he's like hey I've got an offer for you yeah or she reached out to him and said are you looking for a wife because again the do you want to expand your land in France yes (laughs) because also we have to go back to this idea that it's incredibly dangerous to be a rich woman with vast land holdings and be single because even when she was on her way to marry Henry Henry's own brother tried to kidnap her right so she has to marry somebody so she's looking around and she's saying well I have to marry somebody that guy looks pretty good I'll take him and of course as we just mentioned he's already got Normandy getting Aquitaine it's it's a great deal for Henry it's it's really an advantageous marriage for both sides nobody knows what their personal feelings were of course because they didn't write this down Um, but it 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 works out from their perspective And so after this happens, about two years later, in 1154, Henry does become King Henry II of England. So Eleanor is crowned Queen of England alongside him. So she's exchanged one crown for another and continuing to, you know, I want to bring this up because I already mentioned this idea of agency. You know, she didn't choose her first husband, but when that marriage goes south, she certainly most likely played a role in extricating herself from it and then finds another just as good option and did that all herself Mm -hmm. so for the time this is really I just I just want to keep pointing out the rarity of this the likelihood of this happening is so slim I mean the fact she was able to pull all this off is something that I think is actually really impressive what's interesting though is that Eleanor and Henry have a very different marriage from the marriage that Eleanor had with Louis so Louis was, as we mentioned, absolutely besotted with her. Um, I didn't see any record that he had any kind of mistress or anything like that. Henry, it's a very different case. He's got mistress after mistress. He is not faithful. Also, Eleanor just doesn't exert much influence at the very beginning because Henry's mother, Matilda, is um, still alive and has considerable influence over him you know you talked about in the episode of Matilda where he referred to himself as Henry Fitz Empress well and she also is the reason he has a crown so exactly obviously any gratefulness that comes from that is going to give her vast influence yes and she's helping rule his lands in Normandy um she's 
she's kind of in the number one female role in his life. Eleanor spends the first years of her marriage as a typical wife would at the time, meaning she goes on to have eight children over the span of 15 years. So they obviously liked each other. You know, it's kind of interesting. She and Louis have two children in roughly the same time period, and Henry and Eleanor have eight. I don't know. I don't know what was going on, but I, th- I think it's clear they obviously had chemistry. It, it's just clear there wasn't a, an issue with her fertility. Um, yeah, and Louis eight children is more than you would even need to secure a succession. Yes. And, and the thing is, Louis did go on to marry other women and have more children. So whatever it was, it's just maybe they just weren't in a very compatible marriage. Yeah. Um, you know, speculating roughly a thousand years ago, we can only really guess as to what was going on. Um, but so as I mentioned, she had eight children in 15 years and that's kind of all she was doing at the beginning. But once Matilda dies, she's able to exercise more influence over Henry as well as more political power. So at this time, Henry's constantly on the move. His holdings are vast and in constant need of attention and control. One of the problems, one of the thorns in his side is Aquitaine. They're always causing trouble for him. And part of this is because they're very French. They see themselves as a very autonomous region. They're not really that comfortable with the King of England being in charge of them. And, you know, if you recall, a lot of the French internal conflicts, you know, the, in Normandy, they didn't really get along. So Aquitaine is kind of troublesome. So what Henry does is he just says, OK, that's fine. He sends Eleanor there to govern for him. And the French, they don't mind a woman in charge. But of course, she's not really in charge. No, she's ruling in a man's name. That's exactly. totally fine. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what Matilda found as well, right? Yes. She's ruling Normandy in a man's name and totally cool. Yeah, and so it's hard to say, you know, did they accept her because she was ruling in Henry's name or did they accept her because she is the Duchess of Aquitaine? Either way, they are fine with taking orders from her because, again... I think maybe they can convince themselves that they originated with a man. But um, this is the period of her life that gives rise to this reputation as a woman ruling over a court of love. So the court of Aquitaine becomes known as the court of love. Troubadours, very famous troubadours at the time, flocked there. Um, Eleanor is said to have ruled over matters of love. So one of the questions, for example, is can there be true love in a marriage? And she has to hear both sides and weigh in on the answer. It's highly doubtful that that's how she was spending all of her time. And whether this actually happened, it's most likely a myth. But it kind of reinforces this idea that she's ruling over matters of love and emotion rather than politics because that's not a woman's domain right she can't possibly be ruling a duchy she's she's just sitting there you know having fluffy little days at court while the men are doing all the hard work I'm not saying that's actually what happened I'm just saying that's the way history has recorded it right I just think it's kind of interesting Eleanor, for her part, really liked and wanted power. So like we just talked about, like Matilda before her, she learns if she can't do it herself, she can rule through her children. This is where things get dicey for Eleanor, I would say. So 
we've talked about this before and we've talked about this a little bit when we talked about Matilda but for kings of this time you know male heirs are kind of a necessary evil they're needed to ensure the succession and preferably you have plenty of spares but once they grow up they're problematic they often crave their own power and there's only so much power and land to go around and as a result they can be a threat to their father the king if he doesn't share that power or control them in a constructive way so unfortunately for henry he falls into this exact trap so in 1173 eleanor's three eldest sons henry richard and joffrey begin to cause trouble henry the younger who is eleanor and henry's oldest son wants power that henry the second isn't willing to give him so what's interesting about this scenario is that henry had actually henry the younger had actually been crowned in 1170 and this is the norman practice of crowning the successor while the king is still alive to ensure a smooth succession Mm -hmm. Um, they would co-rule this this is is what stephen wanted to do with his son but was rejected Yes, and this is actually the only instance of this happening in England after the Norman conquest. So this was a really common practice for the Norman kings. And the French, I think, too. Well, yes, it's very common. But once they got to England, they stopped this practice, and this is the only time that it ever happened. And it may be because it didn't go well. Henry, even though he crowned his son, wasn't really willing to give him any actual power so in frustration henry the younger rebels and he goes to paris to gather support from eleanor's ex-husband king louis her sons richard and joffrey quickly join him against their father and once again eleanor is blamed for the problems facing her husband she is blamed for inciting this rebellion It does, however, appear that she encouraged the lords in Aquitaine to support them. So from what we know, it seems like she's on the side of her sons. It's not really clear what the motivation was for this. So some people blame the fact that Henry was having a very public affair with a woman called Rosamund Clifford. And there were rumors that he wanted to put Eleanor aside and marry her instead. But she's not his first mistress and Eleanor would have been used to this by now. So it's it's unlikely that this would have given her cause to openly rebel against her husband it's more likely that she simply sided with her sons and wanted to check henry's power she probably just thought they were right you and know also maybe for her personally it's more likely that she can wield influence over her sons than her husband yes because by this point eleanor and henry they aren't having any more babies <laughs> let me put no, it but that like, way having ruled in aquitaine she's now realized she can do it and probably has a taste for power and the best way to increase and continue that is through her sons yes yes because henry's not sharing power with anybody he's not letting eleanor rule for him he's not letting his sons rule for him and eleanor has seen him make promises that he hasn't kept you know it's kind of interesting henry the younger gets the crown but he doesn't get to do anything with it um her son richard had a little bit better off because he was going to inherit the french holdings aquitaine and he was actually eleanor's favorite as a result and then you have joffrey who 
um you know didn't really have much going on for him at the moment um but of course like all princes wants power so Eleanor I think she saw them against the husband and thought well that's the winning side um and what's interesting about this is that for Henry for his sons to rebel that's one thing you know this was pretty common this was a common problem you know it's it's been experienced by previous kings it's almost expected but for Eleanor to betray him that's something else entirely Um, the Archbishop of Rouen even claimed that she was threatening the very fabric of society by going against her husband so even though we have a woman who's relatively powerful you know the idea that she would disobey her husband and rebel against him just she's stepping out of place exactly she's going to cause untold destruction if she goes on this path so what happens is she's on her way to join her sons from Poitiers and Henry's forces actually capture her the boys are forced to give up their cause and ask for mercy from Henry he's merciful with his sons but he imprisons Eleanor for the next 15 years Mm. she doesn't get to go anywhere Interestingly, though, over this 15-year period, even though they've already mended fences, the boys continue to rebel against their father. So Eleanor's blamed for this first conflict, but for the next 15 years, she's locked up and they're continuing to chafe against Henry. So I think maybe perhaps she was unfairly blamed for this initial revolt. What a pattern. Yes, I know. I'm, are you sensing it? Yeah. <laughs> also, though, I wonder... It what imprisonment really meant was she just not allowed to leave a certain castle or was yes. she literally she wasn't locked, locked in, in a dungeon, dungeon? no she yeah. was just held captive she she literally was held in a in a tower in a castle and not allowed to leave you know that, she had people that might still her. seem a bit small after 15 years <laughs> yes yes especially as a woman used to being on the move and used to being able to have relative independence she's not allowed to go anywhere luckily for eleanor her imprisonment ends in 1189 when Henry died at the age of 56. So Richard at this point inherits the crown. <clears throat> By then Henry and Joffrey, although Joffrey was younger than Richard, have both died. And so Richard is next in line and he immediately orders his mother's release. The like the his first act as king is to send an emissary to the um castle she's being held at and order them to let her go and apparently when they got there they'd already released her because i think eleanor said oh the king is dead i'm done i'm free yeah and so as i mentioned richard and eleanor had a pretty good relationship so she's back in power she's signing documents as queen of england and she's ruling england in his stead as he pretty much immediately does what Goes on crusade. Goes on crusade. Because this one is does. um this is King Richard of Robin Hood fame. Yes, this is Richard the Lionheart. He immediately leaves England and goes on crusade. And he's actually gone for a while because he comes back from crusade and is immediately captured and held in a castle in Germany for over a year. Um, Eleanor manages to keep the peace at home and is instrumental in raising the ransom to get him back. So 
What did he do to the Germans? I don't know. I, I actually, since we, since this wasn't about King Richard, I didn't look up why he was actually captured. But um, it takes him a while to get home is the point. And she's just, she's holding down the fort. It's fine. He has a wife. I didn't even write down her name because nobody ever talks about the wife of Richard the Lionheart, right? No. We just talk about his mother. And they didn't have children, right? They didn't because, or at least none that, survived because Richard dies in 1199 and her youngest son John inherits the throne. It's also hard to have children when your husband's gone. Gone on crusade. Yeah. Yeah. So also interestingly John inherits the throne and Eleanor once again instrumental in his success. She steps in and secures the succession for him because her grandson Arthur who's the son of Joffrey is trying to take the throne and Eleanor not only foresees this coming but manages to um nip that in the bud and make sure that john can take the throne successfully because realistically if we're following the the real rules of um primogeniture arthur does have the better claim right that's the question right and that hasn't been resolved who has the better claim is it the son of the king or the son of the older son of the king so She, But regardless, she nips that in the bud. They capture him. John could take the throne. All well and good. And he outlived. It's strange that John inherited the throne and not Arthur in the first place. But when Joffrey died, Arthur, I don't even think Arthur had been born yet. He, I think he was born after Joffrey died. So okay. he was never really. But he would have been born when Richard died. Yes, but he, you know, he just wasn't, nobody, nobody was worrying about him. Okay. You're right. He had an arguable claim. It's not really the point of this episode. I'm just getting involved. Yes. (laughs) And in any case, he was enough of a threat where Eleanor saw it coming and managed to pave the way for John's success. And then once John takes the throne, I think she kind of thought, you know what, I'm kind of tired. So she takes the veil of the nun and she lives out the rest of her life in Fontevraud, abbey um that's where she eventually dies in 1204 around the age of 80 which is a very long time yeah to live for a woman not only a woman of this time period but also a a woman who's had 10 children also a person of this time period i think the average male age was like mid 50s yes i mean she lived outlived probably most of her contemporaries and did that while surviving 10 childbirths that alone I find very impressive. I mean, how many of her children did she outlive? She outlived all of her children except for two of them. Wow. Her son John and I think her daughter Eleanor. And then she was buried next to Henry in the abbey despite mm. all of their differences. So, I mean, all in all, I just think she's an incredible lady. It's incredible to think of the power that she was able to wield at this time and the agency that she had over her life. Especially because the record is so slim, this is what we do know. You know, I mean, if you think about everything that we don't know, I would just imagine that she was a very incredibly smart and complex woman to have achieved all of this. And I think it's also interesting because this record is so slim. You know, I have this question, does she kind of get the short stick in history? Like... She's remembered as this beauty and for her court of love. She gets, But she gets called an adulteress. She gets called a temptress. She's accused of having all these affairs. On top of her uncle, she was accused of having an affair with Henry's own father, Joffrey, before she met Henry. Um, 
she's kind of put forward as this Jezebel, you know, this woman of loose morals, probably because the men didn't like that she had power and that she was willing to leave her husband when he no longer suited her. Um, she's many times blamed for her husband's failures. And you mentioned this briefly, but I realize she's not in the Robin Hood story. No. You know, we got King Richard and King John, and the whole premise of one of the reasons of Robin Hood is that King Richard is gone and not ruling his kingdom. So John is stepping in and doing all these cruel things in his absence. But where the hell's his mother? So nobody ever mentions his mother. Should be the villain of Robin Hood. She should. (laughs) She absolutely should. Because whatever's happening is her policy right if she's ruling in Richard's stead if we take the story of Robin Hood and look at it in this lens yes (laughs) Eleanor of Aquitaine should be the Prince John that's the tagline of this Eleanor of Aquitaine the true villain of Robin Hood (laughs) you know I like that I like that a lot um but I just mean like you know she my point is that she was so remarkable that she wasn't erased from history in a time when women are, you know, like I said, we don't, I don't even remember the name of King Richard's wife. And I couldn't tell you, I had to look up her mother's name. You know what I mean? It's just women were not included well, in the record in this time. But she's, at the same time, she's remembered, but she's defanged a bit, right? Like she's only yes. remembered for the courtly love and all the female things that are acceptable and, you know, whatever real power she might have wielded is assigned to other men. Yeah, it's it's almost like including in folklore. It's just frustrating. <laughs> the people writing the record books kind of put her in her place a little bit because you know, it's it's not think, think about the crusade example. It's not that a wo- a woman could lead a crusade. It's either her husband was so in love with her he couldn't bear to leave her behind or she's the reason they went and it's a terrible idea. Right. There's a lot to cover in that one. I mean, like, you know, for a woman living a 1000 years ago, to live 80 years of life, to wear two crowns, to be the mother of two kings. I mean, how long would this episode shabby. have been had we actually had a lot more information on her? <laughs> it would probably be a three-part series. Yeah. Well, that's Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah, we could keep going, but it will just be me banging my fist on the table and saying, she deserved better. <laughs> I think the highest compliment we could pay her is to rewrite Robin Hood and put her in her place when Disney inevitably remakes it maybe she can play like the you know whatever animal they want to assign her (laughs) (laughs) anyway um okay so next time we're going to be talking about another queen consort also an interesting figure but from a slightly different background than Eleanor so that will be Elizabeth Woodville wife of Edward the fourth yes okay thank you I haven't done the research yet so (laughs) A little shaky on my Edwards. Yeah, but until then, uh, enjoy thinking about Eleanor. Thank you. Until then. MonarchCast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.